The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Providing insight and resources for your spiritual journey. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. In his 2015 encyclical about humans, animals, and the earth, Pope Francis wrote the following. In our time, the church does not simply state that other creatures are completely subordinated to the good of human beings, as if they have no worth in themselves and can be treated as we wish. Every act of cruelty towards any creature is contrary to human dignity. Now, we have no indication that the Pope has taken the next step and has gone vegan, but many other Catholics have, and we're going to be talking with two of them today. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan program. You can find out more about my work at MainStreetVegan.net. In our second segment, I'll be speaking with Professor Charles Carmozzi, author of For the Love of Animals, Christian Ethics Consistent Action. And right now, now, we're going to have so much fun talking with Tammy Cole. Tammy curates a fascinating Facebook page called Catholic Vegan Life. She is herself a vegan Catholic mom of three, a wife, a former elementary school teacher, an organic skin care and tea consultant. She attends St. James Cathedral in Seattle, where she teaches fourth grade faith formation and is also part of the marriage ministry there with her husband. She went vegan in 2008 and feels it's one of the best things she's ever done. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. This is wonderful. It's well, it's such a pleasure. An honor. Thank you. 
I, I love what you post online. I mean, I also see you on Instagram and, and other places, and you're always so upbeat. And, and to me, you represent the best of what it is to be a spiritual person and a vegan somebody really living a, a wonderful life. So tell us a little history. Where did veganism start for you? Wow, well, thank you. It's been actually quite a journey, much like my faith journey. So as a young child, I loved animals. I went all the way back to the beginning when I was thinking about this. And I had bunnies, hamsters, fish, and a few dogs, and I was an only child. And so these animals were my friends and my family. And I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in a very meat and potatoes eating family. And I never questioned the fact that I adored animals, loved them, but I also ate them. And all the people around me also ate animals for their food. And I realize now, looking back, that there was just a complete disconnect there for me. So now, cut to present day, I'm 51. Looking back, I managed to go through all my school years, including college, believe it or not, without ever meeting a single vegetarian or a vegan. And then I finally met a vegan in my first job outside of college. And she definitely planted some seeds, so to speak, without even knowing it. She was not preachy at all, just the way that she lived her life. And uh, that Easter, after getting to know her, I couldn't manage to eat the prime rib that everybody else was raving about at the Easter dinner. So that is when my dabbling with vegetarianism began. And there were many baby steps and setbacks along the way from that day until becoming vegan. And then the veganism really came to be at about the age of 41, and it was shortly after my mother, who was a single mother, she died from a one-year battle with brain cancer. And her faith was very strong, so much so that my husband actually chose to be confirmed in the Catholic faith after she died. And that's a whole other story. But uh, as her caretakers, we really saw her suffering up close. And one day in particular really stands out to me. Her brain tumor was causing her to feel these awful electrical currents or zaps throughout her body. And she was in complete agony, and the doctors really couldn't do much to help her. And I was by her bedside, and I felt so completely helpless. And I remember thinking that I never wanted to cause suffering in another. And I knew that my mom's brain cancer, of course, was not my fault. I wasn't causing this. But I became so aware of suffering and what suffering was from that day of watching her that it absolutely woke something up inside of me that I think had been sleeping. And after she died, uh, this was about several months after, I remember being in downtown Seattle in a smoothie shop, and I ordered my smoothie, and there were some animal rights pamphlets sitting there. So I picked one up, and I was reading it, being you know vegetarian, and, and there was all the information, um, the horrors of factory farming for dairy cows and egg-laying chickens, and it suggested watching the movie Earthlings. And so I went home, and I watched that, and that was it. I went vegan at that exact moment, and I never looked back. And I really think it had to do with connecting from seeing my mom suffering to learning more about these industries that I actually I didn't realize just how bloody they were, the dairy and, and the eggs. And um, it's really been one of the very best decisions of my entire life. I love how it brings everything together. And it really makes you feel, you know, I can't change everything, but I can change this thing at least my contribution to it. A beautiful, beautiful story. I'm so sorry that your mother had to endure what she did. So you're vegan and you're Catholic. Yeah. Has that presented any challenges? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, on one hand, I, I feel that it connects so beautifully because Catholics are called to care for the marginalized and the voiceless and to value life. And being vegan definitely addresses those calls. But, of course, as Catholics, we don't stop there. We also help with so many other needs and causes. Uh, but being vegan, I find, is something that influences so many of my consumer choices, and it, it almost enables me to cast a vote for the kind of world, a, a more compassionate world that I want to see every single day. And I can do this several times a day. And so when I realized that, I thought, that is really quite amazing because I can't think of any other cause where you can have such a hands-on daily impact. Uh, and I also know that I'm not willing to pay, and I think about this with all my Catholic values, I'm not willing to pay anyone to do something I wouldn't be willing to do myself, and I don't want to harm another for my appetite, whether it's food or fashion or comfort. So my faith really woke me up to the fact that my personal actions matter, like you said, and they have serious consequences, and faith isn't something that we only practice on Sundays. It's every day. And then for challenges, I would say it's interesting because as a vegan, I am in a definite minority in my Catholic circles, and then as a Catholic, I'm definitely in the minority in my vegan circles. And then in both circles, they each have kind of a different idea of what the other is about. And there's a lot of, uh, there could be some stereotyping going on, so to say. And uh, I really learned to lean on God and understand that following my heart and my conscience is important, and it's way more important than fitting in with either group completely. So it's definitely humbling. And that's the reason why I started the Facebook page, Catholic Vegan Life, because I was hoping to find others who face this challenge and create a community for all of us that are like-minded in spirit. Well, it's so admirable. I was thinking as you were talking about um, someone that was on the program just a couple of, of months ago, Susie Welch, and she's an evangelical Christian. And I asked her if it was more unusual in her business circles and social circles that she was a Christian or that she was a vegan. And she kind of paused for a minute and she said, Christian. So it is interesting how, you know, we, we all have so many affiliations and, and, and so many ways of being in the world that the overlap is, is really fascinating. So what, what inspires you as a vegan Catholic? Definitely the animals. Uh, I had this one dog. She has since passed away. Her name was Nellie, and she had coarse white fur and cute little spots on her ears. But the, the main thing is she had this pink skin underneath, and she reminded me of a little piglet. Her body stature, the way she walked, she was like my little piglet, Nellie. And, you know, I looked at her, and I remember I've heard Moby talk about this before where he looked at his cat, and he realized oh, my goodness, if I could never harm you, how could I ever harm an animal? How could I ever eat an animal? So the animals themselves, being able to, to look an animal in the eye and know that you're not doing anything to harm them really motivates me on a daily basis. And then in the Catholic tradition, I would say St. Francis, of course, because he's the patron saint of the animals and the environment, and there's so many wonderful stories about him. Uh, and, of course, Pope Francis with that wonderful, wonderful encyclical, encyclical that he wrote called Laudato Si. Uh, so many great care for the environment at such an important time in our world and so many mentions and nods to the animals 
that when I read that, I, I, wow, it just made my heart swell. And it's called a letter, but it's actually, there's enough pages in there that it makes up about a 175-page book. So it's quite a read, and uh, I'm always recommending that to people. But he just said some beautiful things in there. You, you alluded to one at the start of the show. And then on the day that that came out, uh, he even tweeted that it's contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. And he went on to say that purchasing is always immoral and not simply an economic act. And I think one of the main things um, where I, I really see him as my hero is when he said this, I wrote it down, he said, we have only one heart, and the same wretchedness which leads us to mistreat an animal will not be long in showing itself in our relationship with other people. And he really acknowledged that everything is related, and human beings are united as brothers and sisters on this wonderful pilgrimage, and that God has love for all of his creatures, so that it includes the animals, of course. And it really just goes back to this seamlessness of caring uh, for those that are marginalized, and I think veganism just fits so seamlessly and effortlessly with those Catholic values. Oh, that is beautiful. I, I just want to give an apology to everybody for the bells uh, that we heard in the back. <laughs> I wish I could say they were church bells, but it was uh, doorman. I try to remember every single time I'm doing this show, turn off the real phone, turn off the cell phone, tell the doorman not to call up. But this time I forgot the doorman. And what that call actually is, is I bought myself flowers. I figured every oh, now and then needs to do something like that. <laughs> so, apologies. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. So, you are part of a faith community and you're vegan and you're a minority in that. So, what advice do you have for other people who are in churches, synagogues, whatever their faith community might be, and maybe they're the only vegan? That is such a great question. And I'm really glad you asked because it's all about taking a little risk and putting yourself out there. Because if you just keep your veganism to yourself and you remain quiet, well, then nothing will ever change. So it can be as simple as maybe uh, your church is having a dinner and you mention to the person preparing the, the food and you might actually volunteer and help out with that, could there be a vegan choice there? It's just it's a subtle little thing that just kind of creates awareness that there could be a need. And then you'd be surprised when I've done things like that People see all the selections, and people who aren't even vegan, they go for the vegan choice, <laughs> and then they eat it, and it's wonderful. And so, you know, working through people's stomachs that way, that's a great way to kind of uh, start that conversation in a really non-threatening way. Uh, at our cathedral, we actually have a group called uh, Care for Creation, and they work all on environmental issues. So if you don't have such a group at your church or parish, uh, synagogue, you could start something like that, an actual group. Group whose mission is to create awareness on the plight of the environment and include the animals in that, of course. And uh, at our cathedral, we have an environmental fair where there are many different tables uh, and booths set up where people are educating and informing. So one year, I actually worked that booth, and I had all kinds of pamphlets to hand out on information and websites and recipes, and it was wonderful. I feel like it just kind of started some conversations, and uh, like I said, I went through most of my life never even meeting a vegetarian or a vegan, and so unless we're willing to kind of put ourselves out there, and uh, and I think, you know, we can do it in a very compassionate, loving way. I didn't go vegan until I was in my 40s, so I always 
have great compassion and I'm never judgy with anybody or anything like that. I think we always need to approach things from a loving stance and meet people where they're at and take all those baby steps and celebrate each one. I so agree with you. This is why I like seeing you online. So everybody check oh. out like Vegan Life on, on Facebook. I think you're really going to like Tammy Cole. Oh, and her last name, it, it's pronounced Cole, but it's spelled K-O-W-A-L. So when you see her, you'll know you have the right Tammy, T-A-M-I. Now, just in our last few minutes, Tammy, I, I must leave theology and ethics and all of these really important things and skip over to something else that you and I like a lot. And that is really cool, organic, cruelty-free skincare and body yes, care. Yes, both have a favorite little neighborhood in London. So tell us your Neil's Yard story. Okay, Neil's Yard Remedies. So they started in about 1981 in Covent Garden in London, and they are an organic beauty and wellness company. It's family-owned, and they're really well-known. Like, if you're in the U.K. and other parts of Europe, people will know exactly who you're talking about when you say Neil's Yard Remedies. And they've really been pioneers, uh, pioneers campaigning for the plight of animals, uh, getting rid of animal testing. In fact, they even campaign for that here in America. And we're hoping that they become more of a household name here, too, because Everything they make is done in an eco-friendly fashion. They actually have an eco-factory with solar panels and clay floors, and they use rainwater. And they really walk their talk in every way. Never test on animals, of course. Um, mostly vegan products, all vegetarian for sure. And uh, they also have fair trade. They just do everything right across the board and really walk their talk. And, and so when they get to the U.S., just about is packaged in glass. Yes, yes. Beautiful blue glass. So they call it blue, blo- blue bottle love, and it's all recyclable, and they only make one or two bottle sizes, so that helps with the uh, production efficiency at the factory. Again, less waste. Uh, so they're just very efficient in everything that they do, and such a truly caring company that I was, I'm just so thrilled to see how it aligns with my values 100%. And lovely, gorgeous products, like you said. I mean, just, I love them, and I've loved them since my first visit, which was back in the late 1980s, so I've been a long-time customer myself. Oh, my goodness. So you discovered cruelty-free body care before completely cruelty-free living. It's interesting how the door can open wherever it opens. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. Oh, love it. And you're, you're reminding me, I must have some sort of prejudice toward dark blue bottles because I love Neil's Yard Remedies and the dark blue glass bottles, and I love Saratoga Springs water, which is also in dark blue bottles. So, Oh, I'm laughing. Yes, because it's the same with me. You can ask my best friend Pam in Detroit. She knows that I have loved cobalt blue glass bottles since the 80s. And so this is even before I went to Neil's Yard Remedies. I don't, same thing. I just have such a connection with that blue glass. Maybe it's the stained glass. You know, you see that color in stained glass in churches. Could that be for me? I don't know. <laughs> it just seems important to me that as vegans, as people who live consciously, that we also put beauty into our lives and really make a point. If you love cobalt blue glass, then get some. You're not going to be on this planet forever. <laughs> 
So have some blue glass and, you know, every now and then send yourself some flowers. Tammy, you are absolutely delightful. I am so happy to be on the earth at the same time as you. Uh, We'll put your various um, URLs on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. So it's Catholic Vegan Life on Facebook, Catholic Vegan Life on Instagram. Get to know this woman. You'll like her lots. And uh, thanks so much for taking some time to be on our show today, Tammy. Oh, thank you so much, Victoria. This has been an absolute pleasure that I will remember always. So thank you. That means a lot. So everybody, stay with us. We are going to be talking to Professor Charles Carmazzi and finding out about ethics and animals. Stay with us. share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world that's easier than ever with mobile giving just text unity radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives what if you could experience vibrant health help heal the planet and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. the saying a good deed is its own reward well moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward it will also reward you with vibrant health boundless energy an easy way to keep your weight where you want it and according to yogis and unity's co-founder charles fillmore even give a boost to your spiritual life On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious. With enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. you might feel so alone with your problems you don't know where to turn we invite you to call silent unity the 24 7 prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour listen and relax as you hear the beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love no matter what's going on in your life silent unity is always standing by 
The toll-free number is 1-800-NOW-PRAY. You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. This is Victoria Moran. I'm so happy that you're spending this hour with us. Last summer, my husband and I went to an event that was sponsored by Jewish Veg here in New York City, and it was a panel with two contributors. One um, was Jeffrey Cohan of Jewish Veg, whom I'd heard many times, a wonderful, inspiring speaker, and a gentleman that I didn't yet know, Charles Kamosi. And while Jeffrey talked about Judaism and animals, Charlie talked about Catholicism and animals, and I started sitting comfortably leaning against the back of my chair, and by the time they stopped, I was at the edge of my seat like it was some kind of, of hockey game. <laughs> it was so fascinating, and I am really, really pleased to be able to introducing you, if you don't already know him, and you may well, to Charlie Kamosi. He is the author of For the Love of Animals, Christian Ethics, Consistent Action. He teaches Christian Ethics at Fordham University in Bronx, New York. He's married, a new father of three adopted children from the Philippines, and two dogs, and a big part of his research and activism is to bring together strange bedfellows to work for a more just and humane society. Welcome, Charlie. Hi, Victoria. It's great to be on Main Street Vegan. I feel like I finally made it in animal uh, activism now that I'm on yeah. your podcast. So. You made it. Uh, <laughs> it's wonderful, <laughs> wonderful to be talking with you. I, I emailed you that I wish this show was three hours long because I know we could talk about so much. But let's just jump in. What got you started in tying the animal ethics and activism together in your life? Well, uh, though I live, you know, in the New York metropolitan area now, I grew up in a very different place in rural Wisconsin. And there were, frankly, animals around us all the time. And um you know, I wasn't a big deal to just have a horse in your next door neighbor's barn or pigs and when you went over to your friend's house. And uh, it was just a part of my life in the way it isn't, at least in this part of the, of the country. So it started there. But we didn't actually treat, we actually didn't treat our animals all that well. Hunting was a huge part of our life over there. In fact, the restaurant that I used to work at would close for two weeks just for hunting season. Um, so it wasn't until graduate school that I read uh, a fellow named Peter Singer, who probably many of your listeners know is uh, a sort of a grandfather of the movement. And I was totally convinced by his arguments. I'm still kind of old-fashioned enough to believe that the arguments and evidence that should win the day rather than just raw political power. And uh, I changed my life then and there. And um, I eventually uh, became friends with Peter Singer. We've done a number of projects together and even did a co-presentation together one time at the Humane Society. But yeah, it was actually through Singer's work that I that I came to the issue. Um, I eventually found what I thought was a better approach in my own tradition of Roman Catholicism. Um, but it was Peter Singer who actually brought me uh, to the movement. 
we're all brought by somebody and how wonderful that, that we have that. And, and we're bringing others. That's the cool thing. I think you know, for us, for everybody listening, there's somebody out there who's going to say we brought them in. And that's that's pretty wonderful. So, OK, you are a Christian ethicist. And a lot of people would say, OK, but don't Christian ethics say God gave humans dominion? What do you do with that? Well, um, dominion uh, is interpreted in multiple ways, like most of the Bible, by different people. And the way that most people who are biblical scholars would read dominion is not in the sense of domination, which is how it typically gets gets read, both by Christians themselves and by those who criticize Christianity along these lines. Uh, Most biblical scholars now interpret this to mean something like a king's dominion, a reference to God being sovereign, but he's kind of put us in charge in a way. And one way to help, one helpful way to think about it might be to say we're kind of like viceroys to God's being king. And so we have to think about if we're really viceroys trying to help God's reign here on earth, um, what should we be doing to reflect God's values? And as a Christian, those values seem clear to me. It's peaceableness and nonviolence, not only through the life of Jesus, who, of course, was the ultimate peaceable uh, kingdom bringer and nonviolence practitioner and urger, but just from the from the Hebrew Bible. If you go through Genesis, it's very clear. God gives permission for us to only eat fruits and vegetables. Uh, even animals don't eat other animals. It's a completely peaceable kingdom, the one that's envisioned in Eden. Completely peaceable kingdom between all animals. Genesis 2, in fact, it's even more interesting in some ways. The animals are brought to Adam because it's not good man should be alone. Not because Adam's hungry. It's because he's lonely. Adams are brought to Adam to be his companions, not his food. Um, and now it is true uh, that some people read dominion through the lens of Genesis 9 and beyond, where God almost grudgingly gives humanity permission to eat animals, but it's limited permission, first of all. Um, Strict laws are in effect, kosher diets in effect, but it's also meant to be um, repurposed at the end of time back to the Eden uh, vision and, and lifestyle. The prophet Isaiah has a beautiful vision of the kingdom of God where the lamb will lay down with the lion, the serpent will hang out with the human baby and all will be peaceful on my holy mountain. And that's the vision that I think we ought to be witnessing to as Christians. Uh, we, we ought to be witnessing to that peaceful king, not only among ourselves, obviously, uh, but, but between all animals. And, and too often, I think because of that dominion phrase being read as domination, uh, we miss that aspect of what it means to live in a peaceable kingdom. Mm-hmm. So you have gone back to the Bible, and I just want to insert the Jesus question, and I'm sure you get it a lot. And I was interested reading um, the Pope's encyclical before this, this show, reading that over and seeing how many times he talked about nowadays, today. So that gives the um, impression that in the Roman Catholic Church, at least, we're evolving. You know, it's not just exactly if it happened 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago, that's the way it ought to be, but that maybe there is some room for interpretation. So the question is always, well, Jesus ate fish. What do you do with that? Well, you and I had a nice discussion over a, a delicious vegan lunch about this, and uh, and I think that I think it's a fascinating question in my book, for love of animals, I have an extended reflection on that. There are a number of things to say about that. First of all, 
if we'd all um, eat, uh, as Jesus ate, even if he did eat fish, the factory farms of non-human animals would go away immediately. And so that would be all to the good for not only animal protection reasons, but also just ecological, environmental reasons. But, okay, so Jesus ate fish, there, or at least is described as eating fish in most translations of the Bible. One, one way to uh, try to um, assess that is to actually go back to the Greek and what, is, what the Greek word actually means. Does it mean fish? As you pointed out in our, our lunch, there are biblical scholars who say no. Uh, it means something uh, different than fish than it's been interpreted as fish um, wrongly all these years. Another way to think about that also is nowadays, if we're going to take, uh, like you mentioned, Pope Francis's kind of progressive understanding of scriptures to our own time and tradition to our own time, is to think about, well, what would have fish meant to somebody in the ancient uh, Middle East? It would have been a source of nutrition and protein that they maybe could have not gotten other places. So is that the case for most of us in the developed West today? Almost none of us. Almost none of us. So whatever, it, let's say Jesus did eat fish, it's not, his eating fish was not uh, eating f what f eating fish would be for most of us today, especially if we're getting fish from fish farms. So um, there are multiple ways. And then a, a third way to think about it is uh, when Jesus was doing this, uh, you know, in, at least in certain circumstances, like the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, it could have been before um, the time, it was before the time that uh, the resurrection had happened. And so if we instill um, this idea that, well, it's about the resurrection being proclaimed that makes us witness to the new Eden, to the peaceable kingdom that Isaiah talks about, that we could say, well, there's a time to behave before the resurrection of Jesus and a way to behave before the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a time after that. And maybe we should be witnessing to the peaceable kingdom in a special way now that the resurrection of Christ has hailed the new kingdom. It's not here yet, but it's already here. And that already not yet um, complexity is what Christians are called to live out in a messy way that we are. Mm. Well, I, I love the idea of, of living in a way that brings about the kind of earth we would hope to see. And, and certainly, I think everybody, religious or not, can read that Isaiah prophecy. I mean, there's one um, quotation from it on, on a kind of wall across the street from the United Nations and you just ride up First Avenue on a bus and you see that thing and it's just so uplifting. And I think everybody would just love to live in that world and we as vegans just are trying to do our bit to bring it about a little bit at a time. So you did mention Pope Francis, as did I, and he has said some amazing things, but we still have the, the bulk of Christianity, uh, Catholic, Protestant, and otherwise, not bringing animals in. So why have not more Christian leaders and, and thinkers brought this into the conversation? Well, I mean, we should blame ourselves first, I think. Uh, it turns out uh, many of these religious traditions are not perfect. And though uh, uh, rivers of blood in the 20th century were spilled mostly by, you know, secular uh, groups and nations, religious traditions have an imperfect past, to say the least, when it comes to living out the peaceable kingdom, but we, with both humans and non-humans, right? So it's not, it's not specific to animals that we failed to live this out. Um, but there are some, as I try to argue in the book, there's lots of resources to build on from important Christian thinkers. Perhaps the greatest saint in the tradition uh, is, in fact, St. Francis, who is perhaps best known for being a lover of animals. 
the early church, you know, um, uh, when the when Christians were still a persecuted minority, uh, really told their members, listen, don't go to these Roman games, even if it's just the games where the animals are fighting each other, the non-human animals are fighting each other. Don't go. That's not appropriate for Christians to support. There's all sorts of great stories I highlight in the book about how traditionally animals have been vehicles of holiness and messengers of God's word. And even if we're going more closer to the modern period, the Royal Society of Animal Protection in, in England was actually founded and started by a member of the Christian clergy and was attended by hardcore, like hardcore Christian evangelicals like Hannah Moore and William Wilberforce. And uh, and now with Pope Francis, we have things uh, moving forward, too. And i got to tell you, in the Theological Academy, studying animal ethics is like the hottest thing you can do. <laughs> That's like, uh, the, paper, the papers that are being given at all the academic theology conferences and religious studies conferences. You know, and I, I have lots of people who want to do dissertations, doing different kinds of animal theology and animal protection ethics. Um, so it's just really hot right now, and um, we couldn't couldn't be a more opportune time for that. Well, isn't that something? And that makes me very grateful for the forward thinking of the little United Methodist College, North Central in Naperville, Illinois, that I attended back in the early 1980s where I did get a fellowship to go to the UK and study vegans, which became my first book. And now I'm talking to you. So <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how these things work out. Yeah, the tradition continues. So what about uh, research on um, non-human animals? Where do you come down on that as a Roman Catholic theologian and ethicist? That's a that's a hard one, at least for my students. They um, they I get I get several conversions every year to veganism, uh, but many of them I, I teach bioethics, so it's my main focus, and uh, which I think animals plays a big I know animals plays a big part in. And so I get a lot of pre-health students, future physicians, who, in fact, may be doing research on non-human animals in my classes when, when, these, are, when these questions are raised. And they might even be vegan themselves. I have a couple uh, pre-health students who are vegan themselves who nevertheless are troubled by this question in different ways. I think it gets to one of the basic questions that um, we need to ask, and we're not doing a very good job of asking it. I think even in some of the animal protection movements, is just a, just, a, just a very basic question. What are animals for? What are animals at a very basic level, non-human animals? Are they here for us? Are they here for us to use, even for really super good reasons, like trying to cure cancer or something like that? If the answer is no, that non-human animals are not here just for us, that they aren't the kinds of things that we can just use, but they have some kind of intrinsic value that makes them ends in themselves, and we just can't do it, even for really, really super good reasons. There's all kinds of debates about whether, in fact, we need to use non-human animals in research. Would it be better to use um, other methods of research? And that gets beyond my pay grade a little bit. But I will say this. If, if we just focus on pain and suffering uh, of animals, as most, uh, at least in my experience, animal protection people do, pain and suffering is where most of the focus is, we're going to lose the battle in trying to protect animals from research because researchers are now getting very smart and they're actually responding to a lot of the concerns that more utilitarian animal protection folks have, which is that they're get, they were very close to being able to manipulate the brains of these animals genetically and be able to create animals that don't, in fact, feel any kind of pain or suffering. And we can still do a lot of the same kinds of research on them. 
And then we're going to be asked another question. Okay, so they can't suffer or they can't feel what they're being treated, um, how they're being treated. But is it good to still treat them this way? Or ought we not to treat animals, whether they can feel pain or not, as the kinds of things that they are? I would say as a theologian and as a, as a committed Catholic, as the kinds of things God made them to be. Um, that's a question that in the next generation uh, we are going to have to answer. And it won't be a question of pain and suffering. It'll be a question of what are animals and what kind of things are, are they? Are they, and how does that mean we should treat them? That is fascinating. And tell me a little bit. I mean, I think of bioethics in terms of animal experimentation, but there's a lot to it. I think for for those of us who aren't familiar, what what's a definition of bioethics, and what do you guys wrestle with? Well, it's. Yeah, it's a contested definition, even among people who claim the title bioethicist. But in general, as the name kind of signifies, it has to do with the ethics of life. So um, now if you say biomedical ethics, you might be focusing more on ethics of life in relation to medicine. Um, but it, so I, I consider myself a broadly speaking a bioethicist that has, has to do with the ethics of life, which is why I include non-human animals more broadly in what I do, but especially because I do teach classes in biomedical ethics and clinical ethics, where we talk about research ethics and using animals in research. And so we get into these fundamental questions. And the first third of, of the course is, is questions about moral status. What are these creatures? What is a fetus? What is a brain-dead individual? What is a, a, a mouse that has been given cancer uh, just, just for research? What is a dog that has been used in various kinds of animal experimentation regimes? And we, ju- we get to those very basic questions that I think then lead to these kinds of, I mean, especially technology. Technology is, technology is changing and will change the whole game. We're already able to do knockouts of certain genes um, at various levels. One can even order their own mouse. In part of my, um, part, part of my lecture on this, I, I project this uh, site from, I believe it's UC Davis, which is literally called Make My Mouse, where you can order certain kinds of mice with certain genes knocked out or knocked in. And if they don't have them, they will go out and find them for you. You can literally order them. It's like a drop-down menu on Amazon or something. So we're getting to the point where um, if we don't ask the question, what are these creatures? Are they the kinds of things that you can literally have a drop-down menu for, for their genes being knocked in or knocked out? Um, then we're not asking the right questions because technology is going so far at such a pace that the ethics is having a tough time keeping up with it. And I really fear that if we get bogged down in the good questions, it's of course good to ask questions about whether animals are suffering or in pain. But if we limit ourselves to those questions, technology is going to leave us behind and and we're going to have the same amount of research being done. um, But those questions won't be able to really address the harm and, and, and problems that are that are being raised, it seems to me. Mm. So that reflects some of, of the conversation going on in the vegan movement as a whole, that I think, and I've been thinking a lot just the past few weeks about the word vegetarian and how, well, I never use the word vegetarian anymore, except why not? Because it does imply a reverence for life. I understand that once we understand that eggs and dairy lead to killing sooner or later anyway, and so we need to be vegan. But but at the core of it all, I am a vegetarian because I do not believe in taking the life of another just because I might like the taste of barbecue. Yeah. Hmm. No, I think that's... Wow. 
I think I think those are fundamental questions that that we need, and it's good we're wrestling with this as as the movements. I think it's helpful to talk about movements rather than a movement, because if we don't, again, the the technology that is proceeding at so, such a fast pace, um, we're going to be left behind. In some ways, we already are being left behind. Um, this stuff is already happening. Uh, in ways that um, that a lot of people aren't even aware of, even those that that follow it pretty closely. So, so what about the the choices that we make in our individual lives? Here we are out here living and trying to do the best we can, or get the most we can, or whatever each individual is doing. Where do we put all this grappling? Do you think most people are grappling or most people are just getting by? I don't know. I think as technology is, of course, uh, both a boon and a problem, right? So technology has brought the suffering of animals and our practices with regard to animals front and center in ways that we never could have done when you and I were coming up, right? It just, mm-hmm. you know, at a, at a click of YouTube, you can see almost anything about with regard to our practices. I show this dramatic clip of a, of a to my classes of a cow being led to its slaughter. Um, and, uh, and it horrifies and there's not, nothing graphic about it. Uh, but just that dramatic sort of walk of death that that cow experiences really move my students in ways that, you know, if, if that YouTube clip didn't, didn't exist, I, I wouldn't, I'd be able to talk about it, but now we can see it. It can be become real in a way for us. But yet, I don't know. Um, so many people prefer ignorance to this. Uh, you know, my book came out a few years ago. I have most of my family, um, when I ask them about it, they say, you know what? I haven't read your book, Charlie. I actually bought it. I don't want <laughs> to read it. I'm afraid it's going to, you know, make me change my life. And I don't want to do that. So even though we have this sense of, um, you know, knowledge and, and we're, we're con- we, somebody like that has obviously been confronted with it in the past, so they've, and they've put it, you know, deep down, they've buried it deep down somewhere so they don't have to think about it. So it's, it's really not necessarily even about the technology and about knowledge or even seeing something. It's about a change of heart. It's about a change of, um, you know, our basic orientation like, are, are we going to always be aware of how our choices affect the most vulnerable? Are we always going to be aware of how our choices um, lead to violence or, in fact, are violent themselves or support or under, um, you know, underwrite violence? Um, it's got to be a way of being in the world, it seems to me, as opposed to just this or that kind of specific knowledge, which is why my courses tend to be holistic in their approach to nonviolence and being aware of the vulnerable and being aware of how our choices affect the vulnerable because we can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we decide to lead a different kind of life, we'll find a way to bury that deep within ourselves somewhere where we don't have to face it. Oh, that's so true. You know, the saga of the ex-vegan. There's always a reason to go back and do something different. And I think many of us who took the three steps forward, two steps back route uh, are familiar with that. So, and in terms of your book, we should be reading it, For Love of Animals. Uh, and it's actually cheap on Amazon right now. Wonderful, wonderful gift um, for, for any uh, Christian, uh, Catholic, or, or non-Catholic in your life who really can't understand why you care so much about animal protection. Um, this book is very, very accessible, and I highly recommend it. So what should animal 
activists do about religion. Should we care? Should we ignore it? Because one could say religion has largely ignored animals. What do you say to that? Well, I think there's two ways to think about that. One would be just a numbers game, right? So if you just think about people and who they are, uh, maybe in our part of the world, it's easy to think about secular people and people who are either hostile or indifferent to faith, more and more indifferent, I think. That's not the way most of this country is. It's not the way certainly where I grew up is. And it's certainly not the way most of the world is. Most of the world actually is becoming more religious, not less. We can forget that when we maybe are in our own um, cocoons here in New York and other metropolitan areas. But it's it's an important thing just for a numbers game to say, hey, guess what? Uh, you know, if we want to make a big difference, if we want real social change, we have to convince people of faith. We have to. And the most um, effective animal organizations uh, are are in fact very explicit about this. So, in, so for instance, the humane both the Humane Society of the United States and PETA have offices and employees who their only job is to do outreach to faith communities. And because there aren't many professors like me who do what I do, I've heard from them on a number of occasions saying, hey, we're thinking about this, or can you help us with that? So if it's just a numbers game, then there's just no way to not take people of faith seriously when it comes to making large systemic change. Another way, the second way we might think about this is to just think again about the problem that I mentioned before. If it's just about pleasure or pain or suffering that we're concerned about, a more utilitarian analysis, a very thin analysis, we're, we're going to end up with problems. We already have problems that that kind of analysis simply can't solve. We have to get to the very basic questions of what animals are, and the, theological traditions have really I think fantastic answers. Whether or not one is religious, so you mentioned the, you know, the first street sign and how that that moves that that kind of language moves all people. It's not just people of faith who get moved by that those language and ideas. And so, one thing I think theological traditions really push us to do is to get to those fundamental questions and not sit on the outskirts of the issue, but dive right into the heart of it, dive right into the center of it. And one person who's been convinced of this, frankly, is one Peter Singer. So before he and I uh, met, he really thought of Christianity and religion as being the enemy. He, In fact, he said we need a full frontal assault on um, on uh, conservative religious views that think of, you know, um, you know, the sanctity of life as being uh, really super important because that excludes animals. But I think now, in, in, after interacting with me and some others, I, I know, in fact, uh, after interacting with me and some others, because at the presentation we did at the Humane Society, he said it, he now considers Christianity to be an ally in the fight for animal liberation, not the enemy, a complete 180. And I think that says a lot about why animal activists should really think hard about um, people of faith when they think about making broad systemic change. Well, I certainly think so. That's why I'm involved with the documentary film that's going to be premiering next year called The Compassion Project, which just asks the question, if, if the filmmaker Thomas Jackson was learning so much from the church that he was involved with, his soul was opening up, everything was becoming clear, and he admired his 
colleagues and, and his co-parishioners so much. And then they would go out to brunch. <laughs> everything kind of shifted. And that was really the seed of this beautiful, beautiful film. So everybody um, look for the Compassion Project when it comes out in, in 2018. It's coming together beautifully and we are very proud. So, Charlie, you, you mentioned the word movement and movements, and I know that, that you move in many movements. And so how can we do some cross-pollination? How can we get some people whose maybe prime concern is something other than animal ethics to just kind of reach out and put an arm around the shoulder of animal ethics as well? Well, this might be controversial to say, but I believe it with all my heart. And I, I believe because it's because I have experience of this working, and that's with the pro-life movement. So one, one unexpected bedfellow or ally is, in fact, people who are concerned about abortion, who are concerned about, vulnerable, from their perspective at least, vulnerable lives who are subject to violence. And I can't tell you how many people in that movement that I've been able to convince that they should be convinced about animals, too, or other animals in this case, too. And it's just I've seen beautiful story after beautiful story after beautiful story unfold as people who were concerned about nonviolence and concerned for the vulnerable in one area turn around and say, wow, this other area is really super important. If I want to be consistent when it comes to this, I really ought to think hard about how I treat animals as, as well. And my goodness, <laughs> having even a handful of people, and it's been way more than a handful of people, make that kind of transition can make a whole community of people that are part of that movement stop and say, you know what, I really ought to think this through as well. And so people like Mary Everstadt, who is a conservative uh, uh, intellectual, have have written articles that say pro-lifers and animal protection advocates are, are um, at odds for reasons of accident rather than anything that really, you know, um, fundamentally divides us. And even speechwriters for George W. Bush and Sarah Palin have um, written books. Matthew Scully is one of them, a book called Dominion, in which he thinks he, he's also reach, trying to reach this audience and say, listen, let's rethink about what this Dominion stuff means. And so if that's the case, that, that you know, that there's just... Uh, it's easy pickings in some ways because there's a whole slew of people whose whole orientation is already geared towards the kind of orientation that would lead towards animal protection. Boy, I mean, I think that's just a classic example of what you just asked about, uh, uh, an unexpected bedfellow that could really turn the tide in how we think about animals in this country, especially. That is fascinating. You remind me of another guest that I had on the show a while back, a Paul K. Chappell from the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. And he said that when he goes to speak for peace conferences, he's usually the only vegan. And when he goes to speak for vegan conferences, he's usually the only anti-nuclear activist. <laughs> and that doesn't even seem like a strange bedfellow. You know, that seems like uh, we ought to be cozying up in that big old sofa bed with some popcorn. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think our politics I think our politics artificially divides us. This is why I try to take a holistic approach to all these things. We have a politics which of its very nature tries to divide us into us and them. 
you know, a binary politics. You're either on this side or you're on the, quote, other side. And one basic thing I try to get across to all my students is that these issues are way, 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 way more complicated and, frankly, interesting than that. And so if we can get that in our head first, that, that, that there's not an us versus them, suddenly that if you have that imagination shift, these kinds of things go from instead of strange bedfellows to obvious partners. I've experienced that personally with Peter Singer and others. And boy, oh boy, if we can really get the binary left-right politics out of our head, antagonistic politics out of our head, I think that opens up these kinds of opportunities. How wonderful. And the animals are waiting with bated breath for us to finally get our acts together and do that. So, oh my goodness, I could talk to you forever. Charles Camosi, For Love of Animals is the book. I will put all of Charlie's URLs and info at MainStreetVegan.net in the show notes, along with Tammy Coles. Thank you so much for making the Main Street Vegan program a part of your week. And speaking of weeks, next week, December 6th, the program is going to be very special to me anyway, because it's going to be a bouncing baby book party with my co-author J.L. Fields and several of the recipe contributors to the Main Street Vegan Academy cookbook. So that book is available now on pre-order. It will be delivered to everybody's door the 19th of December. And next week we'll be live. You can call in. We'll be doing some giveaways. So do put us on your calendar for December 6th, and we'll be having a party. So thanks to our guests. Thanks to Unity Online Radio, our engineer, Jeff Comfort. And mostly thanks to you. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. notice that there might be something not quite right, but you just can't put your finger on it? We may describe it as an inner stirring, a restlessness, a yearning to find our way home to our heart and higher purpose. Some of us may feel like we are living on borrowed time, that despite our accomplishments, what was once so important to us now just feels empty and meaningless. If you find your heart longing, wanting, looking for a path home to authenticity and purpose, join us for transformation, inspiration, hope, and possibility. Move toward your higher calling. Listen to The Call of Spirit with Evelyn Foreman and tune in to Possibility every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central Time here on Unity Online Radio. Often, people desire prosperity but are not willing to pay the price. What is the price? 
It is sharing, giving, loving, and caring. Prosperity needs an inflow and an outflow, just as a body of water does if it is to remain fresh and clean. As we create an outflow by giving in love, we experience the inflow of a greater awareness of good in our lives. Perhaps you've been led to believe that for every winner in this game we call life, there must be a loser. The truth is that you rarely lose by giving. In giving freely without thought of return, we set in motion a great momentum of goodness. When we give, everyone is a winner. You have something unique to offer the world, something no one else can give. Whatever your gift, know that it is precious. Give it freely. Share it in love. This message has been brought to you by the Association of Unity Churches International. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Every moment we live can be holy, and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so. Everything we do can be a prayer, and by using our innate creativity with intention, in every aspect of our lives, that can indeed be true. Author Carla Kincannon wrote, Creativity is so much more than art making. It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit. Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.